There is a place I'd give the world to see Where the music's softly playing And the rhythm's gently swaying Underneath the stars in a million bars Guitars are softly saying Mexico You've got to be in so much to see in Mexico Marvellous, yes. Uh, Long John Baldry introducing our uh, Mexican spot. Uh, let's say uh, a very good evening to uh, John Bonfilio, who joins us from Campeche in uh, Mexico. Uh, John, thanks uh, ever so much for joining us. Welcome back, Martin. Lovely to be back. Lovely to be, and nice to be talking about Mexican food. Um, I, I say I'm not a huge fan of Mexican food in in this country. Uh, however, um, the death's been reported of Diana Kennedy. Uh, she was a British food writer and uh, very much an ambassador of Mexican cuisine. She's uh, died sadly at the age of 99, so a fair, a fair old run. Um, but John, she's uh, she wrote about Mexican food. She was uh, a great defender of Mexican food. It's not like the stuff that we tend to eat over here, is it? It really isn't. And yeah, she, she died, as you say, at the age of 99, just a few days ago, a long, long way from Loughton in Essex uh, and 1923, which is when, when and where she was born. She arrived into Veracruz in 1957, as she said herself, with a, a few hundred dollars and half a marriage proposal. But it turns out it was half a marriage proposal from the New York Times columnist that she'd met under civil strife in Haiti. And then they proceeded to live in, in Mexico for an extended period as he covered uh, ongoing strife in Central America. She would go round Mexico in a little pickup truck, uh, famously with a pistol in the glove compartment, just in case. <laughs> and uh, and as she would say, she you know you always follow the source. You follow the source, and she just became obsessed with um, with Mexican food and Mexican cuisine and Mexican ingredients, which are completely unique. And as you say, Martin, like what you would get in a, I think it's changed a lot in the last ten fifteen years. You do get a, a whole different brand of Mexican cuisine now um, in the U.S., in, in Canada, in, in the U.K. and so on. But historically, you would basically just have, you know, really bog standard Tex-Mex fajitas and burritos and beer and mm. dancing and tequila, which would leave nobody feeling particularly good about their, their place in the world the next mm. morning. And that's very definitely not what Mex where Mexican cuisine historically, traditionally and sociologically is at, which is... With real diversity, amazing ingredients, amazingly locally grown ingredients that, that vary right across the country. They change, they, they're different community to, to community. And although there are some staples like rice and, and beans and, and, and so on, actually the, the variety on offer, uh, is, is really unique. And, and a lot of people think that it's, it's predominantly meat based, but it really isn't. I mean, there's so many different legumes and, and vegetables and leaves here that actually being a, I, I am, a vegetarian. I'm very, very close to being a vegan, and actually, my my life here is way easier than it than it than it is whenever I'm in any you know different country. And um, and yeah, really, uh, I mean, whenever you eat something here locally, you really feel as though you're tapping into your social and cultural history because there are still uh, local markets absolutely everywhere. You know, um, not just traditionally and historically, but even today, you will have. Um, families, small-scale producers coming in on buses from the local communities 
from rural communities in the mornings to have their little stall in the market and they will be selling what they grow and that and that culture is very much still alive and it's what she she absolutely celebrated even towards you know her, her uh, last days at what became the diana kennedy center for the preservation of mexican cuisine in her little adobe house in sitacuaro in in, in michoacan um and yeah for, for sure probably the most i don't think probably for sure the most important english language writer about mexican cuisine she was given the order of merit of the aztec eagle martin uh, uh, mm-hmm. which i i absolutely aspire to which is the the highest honor provided by the mexican government for for foreigners but even our dear old prince charles in 2002 good to know that when he's not receiving suitcases of cash he does a few <laughs> other things he he visited her in michoacan had lunch with her and, and physically gave her awarded her the mbe uh, wow. for services to cultural relations between yeah between mexico and and and, and the uk so Yeah, there you go. Even Prince Charlie, dear Prince Charlie, uh, popped in at her gaff uh, yeah. about 20 years ago. Brilliant. And uh, you say legumes. Now, I know peanuts are legumes. Um, presumably, what, these are legumes that we don't get over here, different sorts of beans and vegetables. Yeah, look, the thing about the tropics is that there's something that happens to life and reproduction at around 37 degrees, you know, at around body temperature, at around 37 degrees, which means that everything seems to go uh, sexually crazy and reproduce and procreate and generate, you know, mass offshoots of itself. To the extent that here, a half mango strawberry thing, you have whole loads of hybrids and reproductions of different things where, you know, which you don't get the further north or or south in the more temperate zones. So, yeah, you have a, a vast array of um, of produce here and and divigations between different forms of produce. I mean, I, I just within citrus, right, you, you have your orange here, you have a bitter orange, you have a grapefruit, you also have a thing which actually looks like a grapefruit, but it actually tastes like a lime. Um, there are hundreds of different variations between things that we would you know, between received opinion of what we would say are this is this and this is this is that and so on. And when you bear in mind that the, the tropics here is not just sea level, but Mexico uh, uh, elevation goes up to something like 5000 meters as well. So you also then have uh, within, you know, within country variants as well in terms of these different producers as well. So, yeah, the variety that is on offer in this country um is absolutely unique yeah yeah I, w- i went to a mexican restaurant in houston in texas and this claimed to be authentic it was quite a lot of sea it was quite a, a high-end place so there were things like seafood there was lobster and stuff like that but i'm assuming that the you know the spices and the the citrus around it was probably uh, authentic um so uh, i suppose you would get two levels of mexican cuisine you get stuff that you might call poverty food if you like because uh, obviously there's a, a certain amount of poverty there but you'd also get the uh, the high-end stuff as well yeah i think there's a big difference like the high-end stuff for sure you know exists in certain restaurants and in certain, for certain clientele I, i would um not so much call it poverty food just because uh really i, I think There's a difference between people being poor and people being living sustainably. And, and, and I think people 
it's certainly my experience of, of lots of different communities, rural communities here is, yeah, maybe in an Anglo-Saxon context, they, you know, they don't have much of an income stream, but actually they are way more happy than an equivalent family, say, in the UK or the US would be. They produce all they have a, a, a high level of food autonomy to the extent, you know, the, the sort of level of food autonomy that the UN recommends us all to have these days and so on. So, so I would say that many of these families in the cuisine that accompanies them is actually incredibly rich just not in an economic, you know, what would be regarded in an, in an economic way. But I certainly wouldn't regard them as being, you know, poor in a, uh, in, in any other sense other than the fact that, you know, they don't have a bank account and they don't have, <laughs> um, cash reserves for a rainy day. But in every other sense, I'd say they're way richer than we are. Okay, Doke. Um, now, whenever there's an international event, uh, which includes the participation of Cuba, uh, you get athletes defecting, escaping, whatever. Um, and I assume you're talking about the uh, World Athletics Championships. Yes. When, whenever there's a big international event, like a World Athletics Championships, especially when it's hosted somewhere like the US, you, you sort of, you can take your bets on how many Cuban defections there are going to be. This is a story which could have taken place on any day in any year from the Cuban Revolution of 1959 uh, onwards. And as you say, this took place, uh, I mean, based around the, the championships in Eugene, USA. And the most high profile defection has been from Yaimi Perez, uh, the age of 31, discus thrower, uh, who on her way back uh, after doing disappointingly badly and just achieving seventh place. Because it's also important to say that Cuba has, Cuba basically prides itself nationally on doing really well in certain sports and athletics is one of those baseball would be the other uh, boxing and a few others and so on so a defection of uh, major athletics personalities is regarded as something of a, a betrayal and she's not the only one there's been a few others that have uh, that have um, absconded either before or after the the championships and and often they will root in miami and they will uh, leave or go into hiding there because Miami is where most Cubans are, most exiled Cubans are. So they've got the infrastructure there to, to be able to prepare and support themselves from um, uh, from getting away from their from their delegations and so on. We're yeah. a, a year away from the mass uh, demonstrations that took place in Cuba last year, and only just about a month ago, about 300 protesters were. Um, were given like were given terms, prison terms of between five and twenty-five years in prison for their Goodness. for their demonstrations and so on. And yeah, I mean, life in Cuba is, I mean, certainly economically is undergoing, you know, one of its toughest times since the special period, since the end of the since the fall of the the USSR and the end of the and the fall of the um, and the end of the Cold War. Right. Uh, just a sports story to finish with, uh, John. Uruguay is currently going crazy uh, for the return of Luis Suarez. Yeah, look, there are, there are some stories in Latin America that made me go, I, I might just get a flight to go and see this. And this is one of those. Suarez at the age of 35 returning from, uh, well, leaving Atletico Madrid, uh, returning to where he made his professional debut at Nacional of Montevideo 17 years ago in, in 2005 where he started his career is one of these stories because Montevideo, Uruguay is going, I mean, whether you're of Nacional or, or not, uh, and uh, certainly Uruguayan football is highly partisan. Um, everybody is uh, delighted, uh, exultant at the return of, of the boyhood hero, Luis Suarez, who is the leading goal scorer in Uruguayan history with 68 goals in 
130 odd games, and, and he's going to be preparing for the World Cup in uh, in, in Uruguay. And, and interestingly, he was looking for it. There was lots of chat about whether he's going to go to Major League Soccer. And this is very Suarez as well, because whatever you say about Suarez and his behaviour and his skill and so on, he's he's always been driven by something slightly different to the normal footballer. And when there was lots of talk in the media about where he was going to go next and so on, he basically prodded uh, Nacional. He, he said he was surprised that his club, his boyhood club, hadn't come in for him. And that spurred the president into action. And very quickly, a deal was made on a free transfer. And, uh, and, and off he goes. Interestingly, also important to say with Nacional, uh, we talk about the history and the legacy of certain football clubs. Nacional was founded in 1899 in Montevideo. So like a really you know, historic uh, mm. club over there. Uh, and also uh, what in Spanish is regarded as a polideportivo. So it's, um, it's like a, a sports club that has lots of different strands to it rather than just a, a football club. And it is particularly um, lauded and famous in Uruguay because it was established as a counterpoint to the European clubs that were being established in Montevideo and Uruguay at the time. So it was very definitely a uh, local, darker-skinned club that was a riposte to the white Europeans that were arriving in the country and setting up their own exclusive clubs around that time. And it's one of the reasons why it is still has such a... Uh, such a fanatic uh, crowd support uh, and fan base that it does now. Yeah, if you were writing the Luis Suarez story uh, for a British tabloid, John, um, you would say, you know, because he asked for, he, he wondered why Nacional hadn't signed him up, um, you would say, uh, Luis Suarez, issued a come and get me plea. That's what they would say. He, he, uh, very, he very definitely did. And you know, the president woke from his slumber, realised the opportunity, and he came and he got him. Yeah, excellent, excellent. Um, uh, hopefully it'll be a, a massive success there. He's one of these people that, uh, you know, had a period where he was considered to be a villain. He was a bad boy, he was a pantomime villain and all that, but sort of redeemed himself in his later years, his story which uh, which happens a fair bit. Um, you know, John McEnroe is a prime example. Thanks uh, ever so much, uh, John. Uh, we'll talk again next week if that's okay. Take care, Martin. Good man. There we go. Uh, John Bonfilio joining us from uh, Campeche in uh, Mexico.